Welcome to the podcast all about women's wealth. Women's wealth is growing faster than men's. As women in the next generation rise in financial power, women will fundamentally change the meaning of legacy. Women as singles, mothers, wives, or widows not only need access to a full continuum of opportunities to save, invest, and preserve financial assets, they also need access to financial education and coaching coupled with affordable and appropriate savings and credit building products at key times in their lives. Join us on Women Acquiring Assets and learn the stepping stones to home ownership, investment properties, cryptocurrency, business development, and learn all about saving stocks and so much more. Let's grow our networks together. Women's Inflection Point is a nonprofit, educational, and results-driven entity providing women a success path to reach maximum potential in each of their life cycle stages. Women's Inflection Point focuses on three tiers of Maslow's hierarchy of needs pyramid, human wellness, safety, and self-actualization. In other words, we focus on your health, your money, and yourself. An inflection point is an event that results in dramatic and significant change. Our mission is to facilitate occurrences of inflection points that activate unleashed potential to propel women to reach their maximum potential in all aspects of their life. These occurrences are delivered at events throughout the year in organic and diverse, inclusive environments. For more information, visit us at www.womeninflectionpoint.org. Welcome to this week's edition of Women Acquiring Assets. I'm your host, Annika Jackson, and I'm here with Laura Rock of the Laura and Jason Rock Family Foundation. Welcome, Hi, Laura. Annika. Thank Hi. you. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. So I'm I'm really excited after reading a little bit about you and, and the evolution of your foundation to hear about everything. How did you get started? Why did you decide to go with the foundation? Um, and then please talk about moving from a, a very general area, right, to getting more specific and niching down. Absolutely. Uh, so about four years ago, I was a stay-at-home mom. Um, I'm still a stay-at-home mom. I just work now. <laughs> so I had my kids, and they were pretty little at the time. Um, and I was looking for that that more, you know, that I think a lot of stay-at-home parents look for. And I wanted to find what my more was going to be. Uh, so I had been donating um, proceeds from an MLM I had, right? And I'd been donating proceeds from it uh, quarterly to different organizations. And that was a really good feeling. But I noticed that there wasn't anything beyond that check, really. There was like the check and then the letter. And then that was the end. Um, and I wanted to do something that could, you know, generally, as you were saying, help women. So, so general, the most general, uh, something that could help women. And I just didn't know what that was going to be. Once I decided to do it, you know, open up a private foundation, which is, um, you know, there's so many different kinds of foundations and charities that you can decide that you want to run. And I chose that one with uh, the help of my administrator, who's amazing. Uh, she's been with me since before we were a thing mm -hmm. and she knows all of about the philanthropy world. So she was able to kind of tell me, you know, what vehicles would do different things mm -hmm. and you know, what the pros and cons were for each. So once we picked the private foundation, things started moving really rapidly. It became very clear, very quickly that my general idea of helping women was going to turn hyper local 
just because you could, you know, international, you could be national, you could be regional. Um, but mine was going to be pretty local. And then also it, we, I wanted to find a place that you could really make the most impact. So what that meant for me was just looking to, you know, a very consistent place where people were kind of falling through the cracks in the system, the way that it exists, and seeing if there was a population that we could impact positively with understanding that we don't have a ton of funds. Mm -hmm. And the population that we discovered were uh, young women of color who are exiting county-run services. Mm. And so that took, that process, I think, from like starting to to knowing what we were going to do probably took about six months um of part-time work you know and i had my administrator's help and then we decided from there that's that's who we're going to work for so i that's so interesting i think this is something that's really important when people are thinking about their own strategy for philanthropy um and you brought up some very good points number one is taking time to really discover what you want to focus on and being intentional about it. Mm -hmm. And then you also brought mm -hmm. up that, you know, you have, you're calling it a smaller foundation. You give little grants, but little grants can have an impact. So you don't have to have millions and millions of dollars in a foundation to make a difference. Absolutely right. not. Or in a public charity yeah. or in a nonprofit. Um, you know, the nonprofits that we focus on now have operating budgets of under a hundred thousand dollars. Wow. So if we're covering a line item for them, yeah, and they're and they're doing massive quality work. But if we cover a line item for them, you know, an example would be there's a program I love called Serenity Living in Pittsburgh, and they are housing uh, girls who are exiting the county rent systems and they're doing it independently without any county support because their founder, Ashley Moorfield, she's a powerhouse. Uh, she knows what works best in this situation. She's been in social work for 15 years and worked with the girls. And so she she wanted to run it her way. But if we cover a line item for her, like driving lessons, you know, that's not a huge amount of money, but it means so much mm -hmm. for those young women who now are going to learn how to drive a car for the first wow. time in their lives and like how how impactful that can be for their individual lives and then the life of that program and being able to show what it's able to do. I just got chills. Yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's a really good gig. It's a good gig. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So when you're talking about um, kids exiting county-run systems, is that kids exiting foster care? Mm -hmm. Foster care, juvenile justice, mental health facilities, yeah. uh, children age out of yeah. these programs. And so what we were finding in my county, in Allegheny County, was when you had young women, now remember, we were already always going to focus on women. So that's what I'm going to speak to. Um, what we found were that the young women of color who were exiting those systems were boomeranging yeah, back into another county system 50% of the time within a calendar year. Mm, wow. So, you know, you get into these questions and, you know, we went on a listening tour to talk to people who work in this space because obviously, what do I know? I'm a stay-at-home mom who used to be a software salesperson. <laughs> so it's not like I'm going to come in there and be like, oh, I know the answer. No, we really listened to the people who are facing these challenges themselves, to the people who have been working in this field for decades, uh, organizations that have done so much good work and finding out who's doing what 
and kind of letting everyone know what our interests are. Mm -hmm. So when something comes up, they call us. Or if something comes up that we need, you know, more leverage or, or the bigger partnership to handle, we know who to go to. Wonderful. And so do you have a like a certain time of the year that people can come to you or is it rotating? It's it's always whenever the need is occurring. Well, I also, there are no employees. We have consultants. There are no employees of this organization. Um, I work, you know, COVID was a great uh, wake up call for everyone, right? Where it was just oh, yeah. like, I, I work as much as I possibly can in this space, but I also don't have a formal process. That's really not how I operate. I operate off referrals from other people that I've worked with. So if I give someone a grant and I also try to make sure to serve that organization, you know, as whatever capacity they need me to serve. So and that, a lot of times that's not me. A lot of times that's finding another person who is a professional who can help them in that capacity. But if it is me, you know, I will help fundraise. Um, I will try to bring together, you know, funders and line them up to to have meetings to talk. Um, I will try to help you run your gala, you know, whatever it is that you need help with anywhere that it's in my wheelhouse. Yeah. I will try to do that. So I get very close to the people that I grant with. And whenever they recognize that someone else in our community could benefit from the type of philanthropy that I, that I actually do, they usually connect me with the, the next person. Mm. So, and then that's a conversation. It's never an application. It's like getting to know that person, seeing where that person works and really listening to what it is that that person needs mm -hmm. to get from, you know, A to B or you know, maybe it's A to B to C. So right. where is it that they want to go? Yeah. So it's very organic. And yes. yeah, I've, I've also done that with my own giving um, I support an organization in Ghana to help pay for kids to go to school. But then out of that, it evolved into, we realized some of the kids didn't have a place to live. So we built mm. an orphanage wow. and then it evolved into, well, how can there be more self-sufficiency? So now they have an organic farming and it's really amazing to see what comes out of it when you do listen to people and listen to their needs and not just come in as, well, we know what's best and we're, funding this and you know it makes such a difference um and i think that's something that's really important needs to happen more in philanthropy um as well as bringing your business skills to the world of philanthropy because often something i think a lot of nonprofits don't um necessarily bring in that business acumen that will help their businesses keep running and help them keep providing the services um that they're so passionate about well i just love that story of you know you went with your heart to find something that you wanted to put your money and time toward and then just understood how it needed to grow by listening. And I think that it's really important to know that the way that traditional philanthropy is set up, you know, there are literally silos. There are literally, oh, I, I'm in this organization and I'm in this silo and I only uh, work with, you know, these three things. And so I can't help you. Maybe we can find someone in another silo. It, it's just, it feels like there's so many barriers. Uh, even something like the grant application process, it's why I don't have one. It, it's so cumbersome and very intimidating to 
new, especially new nonprofit founders, uh, to get in there and figure out exactly how to word things. And I get I get calls all the time for people who I work with who are trying to get, you know, other funding about how do I say this? Mm-hmm. How do I say this thing that I do? You know, prescriptive philanthropy looks like this. And I'll just give a really quick example. Oh, you know, we want to help mothers um, who are maybe sex workers stop sex work. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go and purchase, you know, something that they're all able to do and we can teach them how to do to have some kind of different career. Let's buy them sewing machines, right? This is a classic uh, example. (laughs) And so then let's fly those sewing machines over to Calcutta and give them to sex workers there. And the sex workers are like, actually, we, we, we enjoy sex work. You know, it's not a problem. What we need is safety, healthcare, mm-hmm. uh, nutrition, and childcare. Mm. But it doesn't match, you know, right. the big ambitions of people who are sitting in these really big boardrooms at the top of tall buildings. So if people aren't able to meet and talk to the people that they're working with, I think it brings in a lot of challenges and you can see a lot of wasted energy and effort. And you can see philanthropy turn more jaded. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I see a lot of where people are, you know, and these are people who are are funding these programs for decades, but are very jaded about the outcome. And I just feel like that's terribly sad. It is. I really like your points on prescriptive um, philanthropy and the fact that you don't even you don't use an application process. And that brings back such an important point, because part of the systemic issues when people are applying for jobs or looking for new opportunities is language, culture. Not everybody's brought up um, to speak the same way, to deliver information the same way or with the same skills. So having the conversations that you're having, you are really getting to know people and meet them where they're at versus looking at a piece of paper and trying to glean from that paper who they are. Um, and you know, I think storytelling is so important. And I think about this, like my mom's from um, Thailand. And so when I tell, when I give answers, I often like will go in circles because I'm going to story tell about that answer and like weave in all these other little things along the way. And that's not, you know, necessarily like if I were applying for a job that could in some cases be good and in some cases be horrible as an outcome. Um, and so thinking about the fact that you're helping build up these skills um, with the money that you're giving, I mean, going back to the example of paying for driving lessons. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't think, you know, I think a lot of people take that for granted. Um, You are in school, you do driver's ed, you know, um, and that's not, but there is a barrier and it's not something that just everybody has access to. Absolutely. Beyond that barrier, there's the barrier of do do these young women have their vital identification? Mm -hmm. Do they have birth certificates? Do they have social security cards? I mean, there are other steps then, but that had to be learned by these women who are doing this work every day where they're like, oh, wait, yeah, we want the driver's license, but before that, we need to pay for the physical. We need to pay for, you know, sitting in the social security office and we need to make sure that, you know, we get a copy of the birth certificate. It's a, it can be really challenging, but once you do it enough times, I think you, um, you have a record of success. Yeah. Which is really important. Wonderful. Well, we're going to go to a quick commercial break and we'll be right back. 
Hi, this is Annika Jackson. At Annika PR, we provide public relations strategy, content marketing, and brand and design services. We are gifted with the ability to draw excitement to an event, brand, or concept. Don't just take our word for it. See our clients' work in Forbes, CNN, Amazon TV shows, and much more. Want your brand amplified? Go to AnnikaPR.com. That's A-N-I-K-A-P-R.com. And we are back on Women Acquiring Assets, and I'm so delighted to be speaking with Laura Rock from the Rock Family Foundation today in Pittsburgh about how she's helping create change in the local community um, by working with girls who are coming out of county services, whether that's juvenile hall or foster care or mental health care facilities. Um, and I, I think this is such a pivotal age for these girls as well, right? Because they're leaving these services, they're aging out. There's, that has been a huge gap, a huge area where there haven't been a lot of resources and people going, oh, wow, we need to make sure that these girls aren't going back into the system, that they're getting the support services they need. And Absolutely. And I think what you find also, something that I've learned from, you know, the, so I work with the girls less and I work with the black women who are leading these organizations mm. in their communities mm. very often. So like it, that, that kind of changed a little bit over the past four years, um, which has been so wonderful because in, in this, this country, you know, the percentage of dollars that are funding black women led organizations and nonprofit mm -hmm. is like less than 1% of all philanthropy. So again, if you're looking for that impact, you know, these women are the people who have decided with the passion in their heart to add on to their already full-time job in their family life and have another full-time job where they're basically trying to pay for everything with that salary that they made. Mm -hmm. So if you're able to fund something that they're doing, operating costs as opposed to program costs, what I mean, what I mean by operating costs I've talked to these organizations, their leaders, and I've been like, what is the biggest barrier to you feeling secure? Because when you're, when you're living off soft money, you know, and you're working only with soft money, it can be very uh, unsettling. And I've had people say, we don't have any money in the budget to replace the printer cartridge. Wow. All of the money in the budget is specifically for the program. And if we didn't mention printer cartridge in the program, which who did? Mm -hmm. We don't have funds for that. So we live without a printer six months out of the year until we can get another grant or we pay for it out of our own pocket. Wow. And so you have the, the nonprofit industrial complex underpaying people who are running these organizations, uh, not valuing them and paying them a salary that a CEO would have, the mm -hmm. CEO were running a, a for-profit organization, and then only giving them program-related costs and forgetting to fund them operationally. So our organization has evolved to also address those concerns as well mm -hmm. and speak very loudly about them in the rooms that we get into. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I love that passion. And are you involving your children in uh, helping with any of the grant making yet? Or <laughs> Actually, so another thing I decided whenever I started the organization, uh, Michelle Walker, Walker Philanthropic, uh, consulting, she was telling me, you know, okay, so family philanthropy, this is what it looks like traditionally. And I talk to family philanthropists all the time who then say something along the lines of, 
we got this mission from our grandfather mm-hmm. and my niece just doesn't want to do it isn't interested in like how to instill philanthropy into children and I don't think that family philanthropy is the vehicle for that and so I'm sunsetting after 20 years mm-hmm. and if my kids want to do something that's philanthropic and I can help them with that then I absolutely will but I refuse to make it my passion that the family needs to be passionate about so I hope that they see me I talk about it you know I talk about my job and um, we go to, to little low barrier homeless shelters and we go and we see you know and meet people and talk about different ways that kids are doing philanthropy philanthropy but I won't have it be prescribed to them mm-hmm. the same way that I wouldn't want to prescribe it to anyone <laughs> Yeah, that's really important. I, from a young age with my daughter, I've done family philanthropy, but not forcing, like like you're talking mm-hmm. about, right? I'm not going to force her to be interested in the same things I'm interested in. She's very interested in climate justice, you know, environmental issues. I'm more of the women and children health and education issues. And... Um, but it's fun to get out there with your kids and do volunteer activities that can help them figure out what they're passionate about. And so I think that- I agree with yeah. that, yes. Yeah, that kind of hands-on volunteering and figuring out like, okay, well maybe they don't, they don't wanna go to the animal shelter. Maybe they wanna make blessing bags to give to homeless people when we're at a stop sign. Or maybe they don't care about that. You know, So fi- really finding out mm-hmm. what they're interested in. Yeah, 100%. And I find it really interesting, you know, what you're able to, I'm social justice, I would say more than anything. Uh, So I find it really interesting when I'm able to have conversations with my kids about, like, we, uh, the pandemic led us to read the Harry Potter series in our house over, you know, the full year, Mm -hmm. which I don't think we would have done. I never read them as a kid. And so my husband read them to my eight and five-year-old. I'm so sorry about that. Do not disturb. You think it would do not disturb. (laughs) So my husband read them to my kids. And then, you know, we're having these conversations about, you know, are elves and dwarves and goblins, like, are their lives less important than wizards? And this whole thing about, like, half-blood. And, like, this whole, it got got way way out of of control (laughs) for a minute. But what it ended up doing at the end of the day was, you know, like, superiority complexes and privilege and so you know using the things that they're interested in to give them a lens when they ask what black lives matter means well does it mean that you know wizards that are have muggle parents are not as important (laughs) it's just like trying to find those those everyday conversations to make it sink in to make it to make it make sense to make it uh real more real even though it's fantasy Nice. I love that. Um, Using books and being able to turn them into what's going on in the real world. Exactly. Wow. I'm going to have to remember that and see how I can use that with my own daughter. (laughs) But back to your point about your, your daughter, you know, we need people who are interested in women and families and people who are interested in and passionate about the climate. We need, we need everyone, you know, to be passionate about the things that they're passionate about and to make a difference. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, so I asked you in my little pre-interview survey about self-care 
And I loved that you said you prefer to use self-love over self-care and that you also you're the Virgoist Virgo. So you have spreadsheets. Please I do talk about that. <laughs> I do. So around the same time, I would say pretty much before, uh, right before I decided to start this foundation, I was working with uh, my spiritual coach, who's still one of my very best, closest people on this planet. And, you know, through working with her, understanding the importance of grounding and clearing your energy and, you know, all of those things that we kind of think of as self-care, the importance of a salt bath, the, you know, all of those things. So there's so many things that I found that were beneficial to me that I literally put them in the spreadsheet. And I was like, I want to do this stuff every day. You know, I want to journal every day. I want to be EFT. I want to tap every day. Like these are things that I always want to do. And then I want to do these things like three times a week. I want to work out. <laughs> I want to, uh, you know, overload on veggies or whatever, whatever the case might be. And then every week I want to do these things. Now I want to go to the chiropractor because my, my skeleton really likes going to the chiropractor. <laughs> um, and then everything, yeah, everything from doctor's appointments and dentist appointments to, I want to get away. I want to be by myself for three days. I want to go in the woods and just be in the woods by myself. Like it's on my spreadsheet. So whenever I'm feeling, you know, like I have time or, um, I, I feel very overwhelmed. I go back to that. And I'm like, what are the things that make me feel good? What are the things that make me feel like I love myself? I think that's something that a lot of people that we don't, we're not good about planning. Right. And I feel like with your method spreadsheeting, it would be easier to then look at that and incorporate that into our schedules and not just go, Oh no, I'll get to that some at some later time. Cause I, I think, um, I know, well, I know that I'm one of the worst at doing that and I'm going, okay. So, you know, over the weekend, I'm carving out my, some time for myself to do mm -hmm. some things just for me. And, um, I'm not going to feel guilty about it. And I think often as women, we're so busy running our families and yeah. working and doing all the other things and trying to take care of everybody else. We forget about that. So. It makes us better moms. It makes us better, you know, entrepreneurs. It makes us better partners. It makes us better humans. I feel, I feel like I'm a better human when I take care of myself. If I wake up and I haven't gotten enough sleep and I haven't had enough water and, you know, all of those really basic things and I haven't moved my body and I haven't been in nature, then I'm not as nice of a person and I'm not as productive and um, it's not helping anyone. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't feel guilty about it anymore. I used to feel extremely guilty about it. And now I'm just like, no, really, truly, it's better. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. I love that. Uh, so what's next for you? Oh, I always have um, a lot of different things going on. So what's next for the foundation? This is, I love this so much because it's something that's evolved with my journey. Um, so what's next for the foundation is that this month we will be sponsoring a nonprofit accelerator mm. in Pittsburgh for black women who are leading the organizations who are doing the work that is, you know, my passion. So what's really exciting about that is right before uh, the world shut down last year, we were ready. We, we lined it up. We were ready to launch and it was going to look this one way. And when it didn't happen, it was really depressing, but now it's going to look so much better wow. because 
the way it was going to look last year was I was literally going to be in the middle of it where I was like, oh, I can do this and I can do this and I can help this way. Like I wanted to have it at my house. You know, I wanted it to be like this, this very friendly uh, thing where I was very much in the middle of it. And then through a lot of work over this year, I was like, oh my God, you know, it would be so much better if I just wasn't involved at all. <laughs> and that's exactly what's happening. So I've hired uh, the woman I mentioned earlier, Ashley Moorfield. She started Serenity Living Transitional Home and I hired her as a consultant to run it, start to finish. Four black women, five black women, all of the facilitators and professionals coming in will be black women. And how much better is that, that that is like truly their space? Mm -hmm. And I'm not like in the middle, like, what was that? You know, like, of course I was excited about it, but you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not sitting there like in the middle of it, like, this is about me, you know, kind of trying to recenter it. Like, no, it's literally not about me. It's literally all about you. Wow. And you're gonna have capacity building opportunities. We'll be granting to these individuals who are participating to have funds to use with the facilitators you know these professionals that they're going to learn about like legal and fundraising they got to choose the topics they got to choose you know what they wanted for the kickoff dinner like i'm it's so hands-off and it's so perfect because now that my kids are home it's really hard to imagine <laughs> what that would be like if i had to do all of that but here i am like offering you know a contract to someone who, who wants a contract and then offering them this space that only belongs to them. Wow, that's beautiful. I, and that sounds like a program that could be replicated uh, throughout the yes. country. So. I know. <laughs> so yeah, we're definitely taking extensive notes. Uh, we're definitely, this is a pilot mm -hmm. and I do plan on taking the outcomes of this pilot and then just pushing it up to my, my friends at the bigger foundations uh regionally and nationally and just being like this is what happens this is the capacity that we have built just in this short amount of time creating this peer group and all you need to do is I mean, it, it's it's so simple just giving people time and space wonderful well how would somebody get in touch with you if they wanted to learn more about the work that you're doing or how they can get involved i end up having i would say I probably have like three detailed conversations a month with other women who are interested in starting up an organization. So that's always an option. My uh, website is ljrock.org and there's a contact form on there. And then I have a very modest little Instagram with all of my weird quirky things on it uh, and my woo-woo stuff and some social justice peppered in. And that's, this is Laura Rock. Awesome. Well, and speaking of your boo-boo stuff, because I love that you're mentioning working with a spiritual, you know, um, coach and taking your salt baths. And I also see that you, um, during the pandemic, became a certified human design reader. So I've heard about human mm -hmm. design, but I don't know that much about it. But that's, you learn how to read faces. Is that, or? Nope. No, nope. oh, it's okay. actually, it's like a combination of your natal chart and um, the Habala and the I Ching and typical astrology. Here, I'll show you because since you and I can see each other, <laughs> I will just show you what I'm talking about. And that ends up having like this little chart. Sorry, there's a glare on that. This little chart right here that looks like someone's body with their head and then their throat and you know, their, their different centers. So human design 
is this way of thinking about energy that combines all of these different modalities that people have thought about energy in the past for an individual and then gives you like this readout you know this 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 chart that you can follow to understand your best way to make decisions that is just for you understand uh your best self-care understand everything so i use it for parenting I use it for coaching and recently I've started to offer it to people that I work with in philanthropy, which is so weird and awesome. <laughs> and people taking me up on it and then us having a call about strategy and I just pull up their chart and I'm like, well, it says here, you know, that you really need to research things unconsciously, like your unconscious needs to research because this is the number there, right? And so just giving them that information and giving them that to think about I feel like really lets them feel seen in many ways and feel like they have, you know, I, I always felt close to the people that I grant to, but now I feel like there's a different layer there where it's like, oh, and you have this information about me and we can talk about that in relation to my life, which that's another important thing. I don't talk to my grantees about their um, organizations all the time. Like, what do you want to do next? What What is, what's coming up for you? Is this still lighting you up? You know, like, and having real honest conversations with the person that grants to them about, you know, no, it's not. And I want to pivot and I don't know how. And so having that, you know, human design reading just emphasizes and amplifies those conversations, I feel, and seems to be really helpful <laughs> for the feedback I've gotten. I'm definitely going to be, yeah, there's, so many things I want to look up after our conversation, and that's definitely one of them. <laughs> well, I really, um, I'm so happy that you were able to yeah, get on. Yeah. And I am. Um, oh my I'm, gosh! Thank you for having me. Yeah, and I definitely I want to hear. I want to have you back on after you've done your first incubator and see how that went, and see how we can help continue to support you. Um, thank you so show. much. And this has been lovely and it's so nice to speak with you and learn about you and learn about your philanthropy and you know everyone has philanthropy everyone has it everyone's doing it and there's so many different ways that it can be framed that makes it really exciting yeah and I love that the passion for it really comes through and I think that is if there's one takeaway from this for our listeners it really is anybody can be a philanthropist you just have to figure out what you're passionate about and where you want to start. Exactly. Just start. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show today. This has been Women Acquiring Assets, and we will be back again next week. Thanks for listening. Well, that's it for this episode. To learn more about who we are and what we do, visit www.womeninflectionpoint.org backslash WAA. If you have anything you'd like to share, Annika would love to hear from you. And she can be reached at info at womeninflectionpoint.org. Be sure to tune in every week for another episode and learn more about how financial assets are a store of resources that women and families can tap into, particularly during emergencies. And how wealth can provide a nest egg that can be leveraged into investments like a home, an investment property, or a business, and then could be passed on to future generations. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.